Let's bow before we look into God's word again. Our Father in heaven, as we now uh, turn to your word, we affirm once again that you are indeed great and awesome. Lord, we, have sung, we sang about that just a little earlier. We indeed marvel at your greatness. We marvel first at your creative genius in the stars and in the thunder, in the power that is displayed in our universe. Lord, we marvel at the, as we sang, at the sweetly singing birds and, and at, the mounty lofton, at the lofty mountain grandeur and the brook and the gentle breeze and even for us, the strong northerly winds. Lord, all of these cause our souls to sing an awesome wonder as we consider the works that your hands have made. But your greatness is most awesomely displayed in the giving of your Son, the one whose sacrifice that we have just remembered in the Lord's Supper. When we think about the fact that you did not spare your own Son and that you sent him to die to take away our sin, Lord, when we think about that, we truly can scarce take it in. And now, Lord, as we turn once again to the prayer of Jesus and those hours before he did bear our sins on the cross, Lord, we pray that you would help us to know more and know you more and that uh, we would see the surpassing greatness of your power and that you would cause us to love you more. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll take your Bibles once again and turn to John 17. John 17, we've been looking at this prayer for the last number of weeks now. And in studying this prayer, we've seen, we looked at last week, how we've been scaling the upper reaches of God's revelation to us. We are seeing in this prayer the incarnate Jesus in human flesh, God the Son, appealing to God the Father. This is sort of a conversation, a one-way conversation that's happening from God the Son to God the Father, a prayer of the Godhead, as it were. And this prayer is elevated even higher by three facts. One is the timing of it. This prayer, as I just prayed, is happening in those moments before Jesus knew he was about to be arrested. And two, he's thinking about his followers, his immediate disciples, and not only them, but all of those who would believe. In Jesus' prayer to the Father, right before he would be arrested and mocked and beaten and crucified, he is here still concerned for his people. So in this prayer between God the Father and God the Son, we are amazed to overhear that Jesus is praying for us. He is praying for all the followers of Jesus. If you are a Christian, he is praying for you in this prayer. And the things that he's praying there in John 17, Jesus is still praying these same things for us right now. This is a glimpse we have seen into what Jesus is doing right now. This is his activity. He is not inactive in heaven right now. So in the Lord's Supper, we remember what Jesus did on the cross, his his once and for all sacrifice as the perfect Lamb of God, willingly giving himself, willingly shedding his blood and dying for the sins of the people. As is pictured so well in those sacrifices, Jesus was that final sacrifice. And when he was up on that cross, just before he died, remember he said, it is finished, referring to that amazing work of atonement. But as we said a couple of weeks ago, Jesus 
is not right now just waiting around for the Father to give him the signal to come again for the second time. He is right now praying for his people. He is praying for you. He is praying for me. He is interceding on our behalf. So in John 17, Jesus there has been making a number of petitions. This is his prayer list. First for himself in verses 1 to 5, but then particularly in verses 6 and following for his followers. So he prays for them, prays for God to preserve us in the name of God, to keep us from evil, even as we now live in this world. He prays that we might be sanctified in truth, that we would be growing more and more in Christ-likeness while we are yet here. And today we come to the end with two more items of prayer, picking up in verse 20. And so if you have your Bibles again, look with me at chapter 17, John chapter 17, verses 20 to 26. And again, if you're using those Bibles that are in those chair racks, it's on, this is on page 903. John 17, verse 20. Jesus speaking to the Father says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I'll continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. By the way, notice here that Jesus doesn't have to add, as we often do in Jesus' name, amen, at the end of the prayer. This is Jesus, and amen means so be it, and he doesn't have to say that either because this prayer is guaranteed to be answered. Jesus is perfect man, perfect God. He prays perfectly. He always does and prays what the Father wills. And so I suppose that's a fourth fact that could heighten this prayer even more. And that is that Jesus' prayer will be answered precisely. Jesus' prayer will be answered completely. Jesus' prayer will be answered perfectly. And so Jesus asks the Father here for two more items. Adds two more items to his prayer list. One is in verse 21, and the other is there in verse 24. But just before we get to verse 21, in verse 20, he extends the scope of his prayer. He says, I do not ask for these only, referring to the 11 disciples that remained with him there as he was walking in the garden. Remember, Judas had left by this point, so there was 11, and they were there with him. So he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus is praying for all who would believe all through the rest of human history. If you are a believer in Jesus, Jesus is praying these things specifically for you. 
And it might be good to think about this, not just individually, but collectively, as all of us together. Jesus is praying for those who would make up the collection, the accumulation of believers. He's praying for his called out ones. He's praying for the church of all time, if we want to put it that way, the universal church. And also this local church, and also for you as an individual Christian, as part of the universal church and the local church. So really, we are included in those first appeals as also being followers of Jesus, like his original disciples, but also in these requests here, for all who will believe. Notice that Jesus tells us how believers actually come to believe. What is the means by which you came to believe? End of verse 21. I ask for those who will believe in me through their word. I looked at that I thought, why doesn't it say that believe in me through his word? Whose word is he typing, uh, talking about here? Well, he's talking about the disciples through their word. So, this in the wisdom of God is how it works. These disciples, these 11, received the words of Jesus. They, they then accepted the words of Jesus after the first Easter and the cross and the resurrection and then the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. You can read about that in Acts 1. They would then come to fully understand who Jesus was. And then they started preaching about Jesus. And people started believing in Jesus. But before these, these 12 in Acts 1, you remember that one was added later to take the place of, of Judas, which was Matthias. So these 12, and then Paul is added to that number, so there's actually 13 of them. But before, so before these 13 had died, they and their closest friends started writing down their sermons and their message. And God, through the Holy Spirit, inspired those words and then preserved those words in what is now our New Testament. And that written word, the words about Jesus, we might call that the gospel, the word of the disciples is what God uses to bring people to believe in Jesus. Back in verse 18, Jesus had already prayed, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, so I have launched them into the world to serve and to Speak in my name. That word sent comes from a Greek verb, apostello, which we have transliterated to the word apostle. And that simply means to send. The apostles are the sent ones. And so just to put all of that together, the disciples eventually became known as the apostles. They are the ones that Jesus prayed would be sent out in the world to preach about Jesus so that people would come to believe through their word. Through their word. I do not ask for these only, but for all those who will believe in me through their word. Just think about that. If you, can, if you came to believe in Jesus, it is through the word of these apostles who were sent out by Jesus to preach the word of Jesus and who wrote down who Jesus was and, and exactly what we must believe about Jesus in order to be saved from the judgment we deserve because of our sin. Everything that you came to understand about the gospel, about God's holiness, his righteousness, your sin, as your sin gets imputed to Christ and his 
Christ's righteousness gets imputed to you, about Christ's death and resurrection, which pays the debt of our sin and grants us eternal life, redemption, grace, peace with God, uh, mercy, forgiveness, love, all of those great gospel truths are transmitted to us through their word, through the word of the apostles, which became the New Testament. Romans 1.16 says, The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. At some point along the way, you either read their word and came to believe in Jesus, or you heard their word and came to believe in Jesus. Romans 10.14, How are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Down to verse 17 of Romans 10. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. See how it all comes full circle? People can't be saved unless they understand this message, this good news. Might be someone here today that's in church for the first time. Maybe you're here for the first time today and as you've you know, maybe even observed us passing around these, these elements. It's kind of weird, maybe. First, pass around this bread and this juice. Maybe this is the first time you've heard that connected with Jesus being our Savior. A Savior who gave his life and who shed his blood to pay the penalty for your sin. Or maybe you've been coming to church for a long time now, for a while. And this is the the first time maybe that this has landed on you in a personal way. That Jesus died for you. Well, this is how the Spirit of God applies His Word to people in a saving way. You hear the Word of Christ. You hear the message. You hear the Gospel. And you say, yes, I need Jesus to die for me. And now I... Now admit my sins and trust in Christ alone to save me. Well, what does Jesus pray for us who do believe in him? What does he ask the Father in relation to us? Look again at verse 21. Verse 20, he says, I do not ask. So he's asking. Don't ask for these only, but also those who will believe in me through their word. And what he is asking is that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Let's stop there. That they also, that they may all become one. That's his prayer. He is praying for the oneness of all believers. Back in verse 11, he prayed the same thing for the disciples. Keep them in your name that they may be one, even as we are one. Now, just off the top, You just think it's one thing to get 11 or 12 guys to be unified. But it's quite another thing for everyone, whoever believes, to be one. Yet this is what Jesus prays for. So we have to ask, what kind of oneness, what kind of unity is he talking about here? With the disciples, we said that this oneness, this unity, Jesus is not praying here that, that we all get along. That, that's not the kind of unity he's praying for here. That is, that is important too. 
And we see that in places like Philippians and, and especially in Ephesians and places like 1 Corinthians. But here in the context of the verse, especially in light of what we just saw in verse 20, it seems like Jesus is praying that we are unified in our message, that we are unified in the gospel, unified in what we believe about how we get saved. He's praying for those who will believe in me through their word. And then he says that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So how can we share in the same degree of unity that the Father and the Son enjoy? It's really an amazing prayer when you think of it that way. But how can we possibly get wrapped up and, and, and drawn into the oneness between the Father and the Son? And how can all believers be one? How can all be one? Well, it goes back to the message of the apostles. That total body of truth that we find in the New Testament that we all hold to be true. About who God is, about who Jesus is, about how Jesus is God's Son about why Jesus needed to to come, about how Jesus carries out his mission from God. In other words, we share a common gospel, a common message, a common salvation. This is what Jesus is praying for, that we would have the same message, that we would be one. If we wanted to say it negatively, we could say that Jesus is praying that we would not have a divided gospel, that we would not preach another gospel, a different gospel. And when we read the New Testament, we see that the apostles staunchly defended the true gospel from impostors, from false teachings, from being just a little off. Jesus knew that this exact point could possibly pose a threat. The gospel is constantly under attack, and so as teachers and preachers, We expend energy to be clear on what the gospel is and on what the gospel is not. Today we have other gospels that are drawing people away from the true gospel. And this has been true throughout history. Today we have things like the prosperity gospel or the word faith gospel or a kind of gospel in which most of the believing, so-called believing Christian world holds to, which is a works-based gospel. Gospel that's based on works. Or the new thing around is the self-esteem gospel. Or the social gospel. Now, even the mention of those might make you sort of coil up in confusion and draw into yourself and think, "How how do I know I'm believing the true gospel? Or even, how do I know you're giving me the true gospel, Sudfeld? (laughs) How how, how can you believe what I'm saying from up here is true? Well, a couple of answers. First, from this text, you can be assured that Jesus is praying that you truly might be one, just as God is in Christ and Christ is in God. He is praying that you would know the truth, that Jesus is God and that God sent Jesus. So, because Jesus is praying for this, you will know. But secondly, you can test what you are hearing, and you can test that what you are hearing, that it aligns with God's word. God has given you the ability to do that. And you can further enhance that ability by knowing God's word, by studying God's word, by making yourself available to times in this church when God's word is being taught. Take advantage of those times. Don't pass them over. 
Take advantage of times to grow in your faith and to grow in your understanding. This is why we have things, teaching times, other than what happens here on Sunday mornings. Take advantage of those times to grow strong in the faith so that you can, for one, discern what is true and what is false. Well, notice that Jesus prays for the end goal of this unity for the believers. He prays that we may be one. And you see this in both verse 21 and verse 23. So that, so here comes the purpose statement, so that the world may believe, or that the world may know, in verse 23, that you have sent me. Jesus prays that our unity will have influence beyond us. He prays that the byproduct of our oneness will be that it impresses and transforms the world. And he adds at the end of verse 23 that the world would know that you have loved them even as you have loved me. So the love of the Father for the Son punctuates and and, and permeates the last part of Jesus' prayer. And down in verse 24, Jesus prays that we would get drawn into and wrapped into that love that the Father has for the Son. That the Son has for the Father. That sort of love, Jesus prays, is passed down to us, which would should also blow our minds. But here Jesus prays that our inner unity in the gospel will have an outward mission. And that will happen almost imperceptibly, even unintentionally. Even as we function in the world, as those who are not of the world, Jesus is praying that our unity will be so unordinary and so otherworldly that the world in which we function will begin to take notice. What, what keeps on drawing those people together? And, and furthermore, when I talk to one or I talk to the other one or I talk to that one, they all seem to have the same message. They all say the same thing. This is actually why we are still in the world. This is actually why we're still in the world, so that the world might know and believe. You know, you have times like me when I think, you see what's going on in the world, and I see what's going on in my my own life, and I say, Lord, just get me out of here. (laughs) I'm done. Did you ever think things like that? You know, this world is not my home. Just the passing through, and and frankly, I'm done. (laughs) I'm ready. Well, it's good to think like that. But we are still here for a reason. Back in verse 15, Jesus said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. And here we find out why. It's because God is still gathering his people to himself. And he is doing it through the apostolic message. And through our common belief in that message. Just because... This testimony to the world is an unintentional outcome, does not negate the fact that we should share the gospel or call the world out there to to repent and believe. Remember, the unity is the message, the word of Christ, the message of Christ crucified. The unity is in the message. And it's this one unified message that we proclaim so that people might hear and be transformed. Jesus is asking God that this might be the effect of our oneness. So Jesus prays that we might be one, but Jesus asks the Father, lastly, 
for one last thing there in verse 24. This is how he ends this amazing prayer. Father, I desire... What would, what would be the, fi- the son's final desire from his father in regard to his people? Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me before the foundation of the world. That they may be with me. So I just talked about the part of the prayer where Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. So we're, we're still here for a specific purpose, as we just saw. But the whole time that we're here, Jesus is praying that we would be where he is. Isn't that amazing? It's almost like Jesus is constantly saying to the Father, I know you want them there in the world now, but I'm just letting you know that I can't wait until we're all together in heaven. It's almost kind of like a, a typical conversation between a child and a father before Christmas, where the child says, I know I can't open that gift until Christmas morning. But I sure would love it now. Jesus would love if we were with him now. He knows Father has a purpose for us. Son has a purpose for us now. But it's like he almost can't wait. The amazing thing is that we get wrapped up into that conversation. Jesus wants us to see his glory. Jesus wants us to share in his glory that God gave him and to experience the love of the Father for the Son. D.A. Carson, in his commentary, says, This thought is breathtakingly extravagant. R.C. Sproul says, The greatest benefit of Christianity is not the forgiveness of sin. The greatest benefit of Christianity is not the forgiveness of sin. He says that's simply a means to an end. The greatest benefit is that we have access to the presence of God and His Son. This is the end for which we were made. It's staggering to think that Jesus is praying this for us. He truly is praying us into heaven that we might be where he is. And Jesus prays that we might be where he is and so that we can see his glory in all his perfection and in all its brightness and all its, its heavenly splendor and, and to know the love that exists between the Father and the Son which is then also in us. So brothers and sisters, coming to church every seventh day to meet with the saints, to to be in the presence of God is a great and glorious thing. This is where we receive encouragement. This is where we're spurred on to love and good deeds. So so the writer to Hebrews says, don't give up the habit of meeting together. Don't neglect that. This This is a great thing that God has given us as a means of his grace to come together every seven day seven days, but this is nothing compared to the glory of God in the face of Christ that we will get to experience forever. We will have a a forever seventh day at one time. We experience and relive something of the love of God for the Son when we share in the Lord's Supper, like we did today. We are grateful for being able to see in part, but it will be nothing compared to knowing firsthand the love that God has had for Jesus from before the foundation of the world. The desire of Jesus for us will one day be reality. We will see him as he is. I suspect many of us want to go to heaven because we want to be reunited with our loved ones. Many of us have experienced deep and profound loss even in the past few days. 
And we are comforted knowing that we will one day be reunited in heaven. And all of that is well and right and good. But even that will pale in comparison with seeing Jesus in all his glory and in all his splendor. The only reason our loved ones are there is because they have put their faith in Christ. And that's the only reason that you will be there. And it follows then that when you are taken there, the one that will greet you there and the one that you will not be able to take your eyes off of will be Christ. He will be the object of your affections. So make it your desire to know Christ and to see Christ. And as it, as it um, affects this prayer, match up your desire with Christ's desire. Just as he desires that you may be where he is, I pray it might be our goal, your goal, to desire to be where he is. Psalm 27, verse 4 says, One thing I have asked of the Lord, one thing, one thing that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Psalm 23, right? I, will, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Isn't it great to know that Jesus is praying this for us and that this prayer is as good as guaranteed? This is God's will for you to bring many sons and daughters to glory. If you are one of God's children, one day, soon and very soon, you will see the King in all his beauty and in all his glory and in all his splendor. How can I say that? So categorically, because this is Jesus' prayer for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this magnificent prayer from the lips of our Savior for us. Father, we thank you for the atonement that in your love you sent your Son to die for us, on our behalf, instead of us. But we thank you also for the continued prayers of your Son, and that through those prayers he is bringing us through this life, he is carrying us through this life, and indeed praying us into heaven. We give him all the glory and all the praise, for it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Receive this blessing. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed.